Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are going in my Wayback Machine, before the Range podcast, before the golf spotlight on video. In fact, back to when I began talking about golf equipment, as I'm joined by Bruce Lohman. Bruce was the Director of Communications for Callaway back in 2005, but he is a part of much of the history of everything that went on with that great company in Carlsbad, California. So strap in as we go back through the years with someone who had a front row seat. As Bruce Lohman joins us here on the range, Bruce, it's been 15 years, but it's great to talk with you once again. Yeah, it's kind of cool that we hooked up again. It, it didn't seem like that long, but I guess it is. <laughs> We're going to start at the beginning because you're originally from Connecticut. When did golf become a part of your life? Well, you know what? My dad and, and was a really good player in Connecticut, and my family were all a bunch of good athletes, all my, my uncles and even my aunt. Uh, and I kind of just, you know, hung around the golf course and, and, and watched my dad play. And, you know, he won a lot of events and got to play a lot of places. And I just got interested in it. And, uh, you know, he used to, he'd go to work. They worked in factories and then they'd go to work in the morning, drop me off the golf course in Naugatuck, Connecticut. And uh, I'd stay there all day long you know, hit balls. And it was like, you know, it was a different time and space then. you could, you know, leave your kid at the golf course all day long and not have to worry about him. Uh, and that's pretty much what it was. And it was me and a bunch of other guys. And we used to just play all day long. That was it. You know, we, we learned how to play by, by playing, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't a structured lesson thing or, uh, or, you know, the kind of things it is today. You know, I coach these couple of high school teams. These kids have strength coaches and mental coaches and, uh, you know, I mean, they work at it like a job. We just we just played. So, uh, you know, that's kind of how I got started. But, of course, in Connecticut, you can't play golf in the wintertime. So I think you found something else to keep you busy. Yeah, you know, it's funny how you do what your parents do. Uh, my dad was a, a, like a semi-pro basketball player. They used to have these barnstorming teams back in the 40s. And uh, I started I started playing basketball. I ended up playing in college at Western Connecticut State. And uh, that's been – Believe it or not, even after all this, this 50 years in the golf business, basketball was always a thing I would rather do. We used to play a couple of uh, holes with my dad at the golf course, and it, it was a basketball court across the street. And if we made it to the third hole and there were people playing basketball, I used to throw my clubs over the fence and go play play basketball. So, And and we're still doing it. I'm involved in a, a, in a U.S. Uh, – it's the largest – senior basketball group in the country in San Juan Capistrano. We play all over the country and all over the world. So it's, it's fun. Now, after playing basketball in school, after you're done with school, you became a golf professional in New England, but what brought you out West? In the winter time, I was running, uh, running a junior basketball program for the town of Reading, Connecticut. And uh, I was coaching a junior college team for, for a very short period of time. Uh, I mean, weeks, 
my old athletic director said, hey, you know, there's this team, JC, why don't you go coach? And I know the coach and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I went and started and I got a call from <laughs> somebody who worked for the Bob Hope Desert Classic. It was a golf pro in Connecticut that got a head pro job and he was not going back to work for the Bob Hope. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, I've got this spot for you if you want it. I, I wasn't even sure where Palm Springs was. I thought it was in Florida. <laughs> and and uh, I got on the plane and went out there and started to work for the Bob Hope Desert Classic, uh, uh, you know, the tournament staff in September and of 1976. And uh, while I was there, I met people at the Dinah Shore and the Skins game and the World Cup. And we used to take our crew and just go to each individual tournament and help them set it up and, and, uh, and take care of stuff. And that ended up being a, a, a deal where I went back to Connecticut in the summer, worked at the club, and then came back to California uh, in the winter and worked. People don't realize with, with the Bob Hope Desert Classic that um, it was just as big an event in terms of golf and celebrity as, as what goes on in Monterey, now the AT&T, the Crosby back in the day. But it might have been even bigger because this always had that presidential feel to it. Yeah, it was bigger. It was, uh, I mean, it was everybody. And because of Dinah's involvement, uh, you know, the amount of celebrities uh, that were there was, it was incredible. It was all these people I, I saw growing up as a kid on TV and it was kind of, it was kind of cool to be around them. But uh, yeah, it was gigantic. I mean, think about it. They filled four golf courses full of people in the celebrity field on Saturday was huge. Now it's, mm-hmm. you know, you get a celebrity here or there in every group or whatever, but then it was, it was, it was huge. You're right. It was, it was bigger than the AT&T. Uh, it had to be. And, and working on an event like that, I mean, I mentioned presidents, literally there were presidents every year. There was one of the places where you would see a collection of presidents getting together on a golf course. Got a picture behind me there of me and Gerald Ford. <laughs> he was, uh, he, he, he if he wasn't hitting golf balls at people, he played in the pro-am. So, uh, and then, uh, Dan Quayle played, uh, there was, there was a bunch of people that played in it. It was, uh, it was, it was cool. Uh, you know, and the, and the trophy was, and I don't know if it still is, it probably still is, was, uh, Eisenhower's putter was a perpetual trophy. They didn't give it away, obviously, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we had it in a warehouse and we used to have to bring it over for the last day, which was kind of stressful. I was like, if I ever dropped this thing. This glass breaks all over everything. Uh, might not have a job anymore. <laughs> now, shortly after coming out to California, though, you met somebody that ultimately changed the entire direction of your life, that being Ely Calloway. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Calloway was was quite an individual. I, everybody that's worked there, anybody that worked for him in the beginning uh, and even to now, uh, it could have been a better guy. And I'm not trying to blow smoke here. The, the guy's been gone for, you know, since 2002. So uh, it's no plus for me to, to praise him. But he was just that kind of guy. He, he'd do anything for the employees. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting kind of a thing. I was working for the Dinah Shore and his wife played in the Pro-Am. And I met him and he said he was moving the company from was Hickory Stick USA then, and he bought 40, 52% of it, and he was moving it to uh, Carlsbad and wanted to know if I wanted to come to work for him. And I said, no, nah, I like what I'm doing. But he was a pretty persistent guy, and he called me when I went, when I went back to Connecticut and said, why don't you just come out and see our, our, our place? 
So I went out and, you know, ended up going to work for him. I was, I think I was somewhere around the top 20 employees. I think it was number 18 or something. Uh, and we had hickory wedges and putters. I mean, that's what we had. Uh, and we really never had no presence outside of, it was all phone sales. Mm-hmm. So one day he grabbed me in the office and said, Hey, do it. Why don't you do this? Go, go grab your car. Uh, here's Southern California. <laughs> go, you know, with a, a count list, just go out there and, and see what happens. And so I went out and went on the road and started and people would buy this stuff. And a lot of it was, uh, you know, corporate events where, you know, they buy a hundred, 200 wedges and we'd put a logo in it, you know, general electric, whatever, whoever. And, uh, we started to get to be something anyway. It was, it was, it was still pretty small, but, uh, you know, something else jumped up on the horizon in between there. <laughs> well, let's talk about the early days there in Carlsbad, because I've spoken with Steve Sachs here on the range, and he talked about the fact that everyone that was working in that area, by working like in golf equipment, you were kind of an outcast already. And so it was a little bubble where everybody kind of knew each other and was friendly with each other with each company because it was a very unique group of folks. Yeah, before it got to be... Uh a real business. It was, it was a different, you're right. That, and, that, and he's correct. That it was a different, we were all around. We were all pretty much at the same facilities trying to use them to practice. There was a little range over in Carlsbad. Uh, it was part of a hotel. Uh, and a lot of guys would go over to test clubs and, and, you know, La Costa at the range would go over and test. So, so everybody was together. People would go out to dinner. It, it was a different kind of a thing. There weren't, there weren't a lot of, uh, legal issues and, and things where you couldn't talk to every, each other, you know, people's pretty much shared ideas. So it was a different kind of uh, situation, you know, after we went public, it, it turned into a whole different, you know, then it's a big business. Right. You know? Now, one thing that set Callaway apart from every other brand soon enough, wasn't about the head shape, wasn't about size. It was S2H2 short, straight, hollow hosel. Yes. And it appeared the first time in irons. I'm impressed that you know what that means yeah. <laughs> and you don't work there. <laughs> I, I, I've been around this, this industry long enough and talked about was, it long enough for sure. First question when somebody came in for an interview uh, that they'd get asked, what's S2H2 mean? <laughs> so they thought it was some prepare. sort of chemical uh, meaning. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, geez, I should have brought it up. I have it downstairs. We had a wedge called a billet wedge. So we milled a wedge head just like they mill a putter. Uh, and because it was a solid block of steel, uh, it was pretty heavy. So they said, we got, we got to find ways to, to, to lighten this thing up. It's a great concept that the face is milled, the grooves are milled, you know. Uh, so somebody, I can't even know who, maybe Helmstetter or somebody else, went in the back and chopped the hosel off, take a little weight out of there. And we said, well, that's pretty good, but it's still heavy. So we took and they started drilling a hole through the hosel, the way the old uh, Wilson wedge used to be with the the little red plug in the heel. But they never really drilled it all the way through. And somebody went all the way through with this thing. I don't know if it was an accident or on purpose, but uh, and they cut the shaft off. And we took it out and we actually bent some heads. We bent a wedge head, chopped the flange off, made a seven iron, a one iron, and maybe an eight iron, I think. And we took it to this little range in Carlsbad, 
I even remember who it was. Dennis Paulson. I don't know if you remember Dennis. Dennis was the long sure. drive champ, played on tour for a while. On PGA uh, Tour Radio now. Yeah. Uh, Paul Runyon. This is quite a group. <laughs> uh, myself, uh, Mr. Callaway, and Bruce Parker, who ran our whole sales, uh, our whole sales thing. And Dennis started hitting this one iron, which was really an old sand wedge bent, and he was just killing it. And the feel, you know, Paul Runyon grabbed the eight iron and started hitting chip shots. And he said, this is it's tremendous feel because there's so much weight out of the hosel and the shafts going all through the bottom. And we built a set of irons. And Mr. Callaway came up with the short, straight, hollow hosel. So there's S2H2. And they started to sell. I started taking them out on the road. And, and people, people bought it. It was a nice concept. It was something to talk about. It felt pretty good. Uh, the ball went up in the air a lot higher than a usual set of irons. And we had to mess with the loft and a few things. But that's where it came from. It came from this wedge, uh, which I have in the garage. <laughs> I found it in, a, in a, a pail in a golf shop in L.A. And I said to the guy, hey, I'll give you 25 bucks for that. <laughs> he said, okay. <laughs> There's not many of them around. <laughs> so I held on to it. Matter of fact, Callaway wanted it a couple of years ago to test because they were going to start milling faces on, mm -hmm. on wedges, uh, which they've done. And uh, I said, I, I need to get this back. I don't chop it up or cut it in pieces or anything else. So they had it for about a year, and I went down and got it back. Now, I mean, it's funny that you describe, you know, the, the process of making this club because it really lives up to, to the, the Ely Callaway philosophy, pleasingly different, demonstrably superior. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. And he, he ground that in everybody's head. And it was true. Everything we built was different than was already out there. And, you know, before the stock market and all this other stuff, you didn't have to come out with a golf club every six months or every year. Um, when you got something that worked, you, you, you've worked it for a while. And Ely always said, we're not going to build anything until it's better than the last thing. Uh, and so S2H was, S2H2 was around for a while and, and, and they were pleasingly different and they were superior. And uh, you can tell because everybody copied everything we did, you know, undercut channel in the irons. And, and uh, you know, that's a big deal now. I see ads, oh, our channel's undercut. Well, you know what? Here's one from 1991 <laughs> with undercut channel. So, uh, you know, People started following what we did. It was pretty cool. Uh, by the end of the 80s, Callaway had made the biggest move that maybe golf equipment has seen. Introducing an iconic club with an iconic name that still stands, and that, of course, is the Big Bertha. Yeah, uh, that's, you could never, I, I try to explain it to some of the kids at Callaway. They said, oh, we're so busy, and, you know, and I said, yeah, you guys are busy. And I don't want to be the old guy telling stories about walking to school in three feet of snow barefoot, but um, there was nobody, I don't think ever as busy as we were. Uh, it was, it was insane. It was, it was day in and day, day out, seven days a week. Uh, at one point we couldn't build the stuff fast enough. We actually had to call customers. Mr. Callaway brought all our sales reps in for all over the country to Carlsbad, put us on the phone for three or four days and called every customer we had to change their orders because if somebody ordered 12 Big Berthas, we actually had to tell them, that's great, we appreciate it, but you're only getting two <laughs> because 
we just couldn't make them fast enough. And then they started, uh, it was Ruger Firearms. They were in New Hampshire, I think, New Hampshire, Vermont, someplace in New England, uh, that had the best, you know, foundries and things. And, mm -hmm. and uh, they couldn't make them fast enough. So we had to find another place in California and we started to make, so we were making them in two different places. Uh, so it, it, it got crazy. It really did. I could never explain how busy we were. Well, and the interesting thing is you talk about how busy you were on a corporate level. This is before there was any internet business. So, I mean, this was people calling in. We want to order it directly from you because we can't find it in stores. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was funny because uh, the original plan was, Mr. Callaway wanted us to take it to, to golf courses, to golf professionals and, and private clubs and, and, uh, Look, that, that part of the business was pretty conservative. Uh, and so here, you know, you go walking in with this big-headed golf club, which isn't even big anymore, uh, 190 cc's. And it was metal, and it was expensive. And they were like, hey, when customers start asking for it, we'll, we'll bring some in. Now, some people jumped on the bandwagon, but a lot of them didn't in the beginning. So I went back to Ely and said, hey, Mr. C, I said, you know, can I take this to some Real retail outlets. I said, because it's kind of going slow, you know, in the golf course thing. And he said, yeah, go ahead. So I went in to Alma, I'll never forget this, Al Morris at Roger, at, well, it wasn't Roger Dunn's, it was Golf Mart in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And he said, send me 20 of them. So I send them 20. And then I went to, I don't know if you remember this or not, Walter Keller's Golf Shop in LA, which was, might have been one of the first off course golf shops in the country. Um, and I walked into Walters and he said, send me 30. And I went back about a week later and almost all of them were gone. So Ailey said, well, keep going to the retail shop. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because, you know, we talk about there not being an online presence back at that time. This was, I mean, even on tour, it was really about word of mouth, player yeah. to player that really spread the legend of this club. Yeah. That's pretty interesting because, uh, and I don't want to take credit for, for, for doing this, but I, I was in the back of the building one day with Mr. Calloway. And I said, Mr. C, is anybody taken? It was the first vintage tournament, first or second vintage tournament. So the beginning of the senior tour uh, at the vintage in, in Palm Springs and, and Ely was a member there. And I said, shouldn't we take some of these clubs down to the vintage and, you know, get them on the range and let these guys, you know, try some. And he said, that's a good idea. You do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went down there and started giving golf clubs away to guys. And to make a long story short, Don Bees, uh, I think he came in second or lost in a playoff. And then I got home. There's no cell phones then. So by the time I got home on my answering machine were all these guys that I grew up watching, Doug Sanders, Billy Casper, asking for a driver. So we had to put a whole bunch of them together and go to the next event and, and hand them out to these guys. And that's kind of how the tour department started. It was that simple. It was just me going out there and handing guys golf clubs. We had a caddy that was working for a guy out there that was kind of promoting it a little bit. Mr. Callow was giving him a hundred bucks a week or something to wear a hat. And uh, so he had kind of started the beginning of this thing, but nobody had really gone out and taken a bag full of clubs. Uh, 
And that's kind of where it started. And then Jim, Jim Dent won uh, on the, but we never had any presence on the, on the regular tour. Uh, and Mark Brooks won, I want to say it's the Houston Open, but I'm not sure, uh, with an eight degree Big Bertha. And after that, it just went. Well, and the brand was solidified. Callaway continued to grow the driver head. Yeah. Physically, the technology as well, it started to get thinner faced and therefore a hotter product, hot, hotter production off of the uh, contact. Yeah. And, and so, so he really wanted to get it, make it bigger. So a great big Bertha popped up. And, and at that point, General Electric Pension Corporation had written us a check for, it was three or $4 million in 1989 or 88, which is a lot of money. Um, and we got to use their aircraft engineers because what was happening was Big Bertha originally, if you hit a lot of range balls and you had a lot of club head speed, those faces would start to collapse. So uh, Ely got GE, who was our investor, to come in and we used their aircraft engineers and they showed us how to shore up the back of the face and, and dis disperse some kind of the, the pressure on the face. And then Ely wanted to make it bigger. So they're the ones, I think, that told uh, Dick Helmstetter, who kind of invented Big Bertha, uh, the only way you're going to be able to expand this more is to use titanium. And their, and their aircraft guys, you know, were, you know, they used titanium. They knew how to use it and what you could do with it. So that's kind of where, that's kind of where it came from. And that's where the Ruger firearms, because they were making titanium firearms, uh, that's where they came in to start to cast some of these heads for us. And that, that got even bigger. I mean, we, we sold more of those than we sold of the other one. And then biggest Big Bertha came out. People said, okay, you guys are losing your mind. <laughs> but, but biggest is, wasn't that big either compared to what it is now. You right. know, might have been 320 or 340 or something like that. Coming after that was was the Hawkeye and, and, and yep. the Steelhead came out. And, and it's funny because I remember seeing something – probably about 10 years ago that was showing that their Callaway's three woods were about the size of what the drivers used to be. Yeah, they are. May, that, maybe they, even yeah. a little bigger. No, that, that's exactly what they are. The, the fairway wood, I, I believe right now is, is the same size as Big Bertha was. And so you, you become the number one brand in, in clubs. I mean, it just dominating the market. Yeah. But that wasn't enough as then there was the pursuit to create a Callaway golf ball. Yeah, that was, that was all Ely Callaway. He wanted a golf ball. And there were a lot of people that said, nah, this isn't a good idea. You've got Titleist. You've got, you know, the startup costs for this thing are, are incredible. Uh, but when Mr. Callaway had an idea, he, he, he wanted to do it. He wanted to talk about, you know, pleasingly different. Here it is. He wants a golf club that's better than everybody else's. And he spent a lot of money doing it. I, you can't hold me to some of these numbers because it's been a long time. But I think we, I think the startup cost on that thing between building the plant in Carlsbad and the machinery that we used was somewhere around $86 million. And it took a long, long time to recover any of that, that money, even as good as the golf ball was and, and has gotten better and better to the point where finally, uh, after Mr. Callaway passed away, by the way, uh, you know, they started selling off some of the buildings and 
and uh, the proprietor, uh, proprietary technology and the machinery, I believe, is is at uh, Chicopee in Massachusetts. Because when we when we bought Top Flight, all those patents and stuff came to us, so we started building the ball in Chicopee, which is mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you saw. I think it was HBO or something. They did a little a little story about Chicopee and how the golf ball that saved the town because Chicopee was you know, like my hometown where the industry was gone and it was kind of falling apart. And uh, because of our golf ball, uh, you know, it, the town now has more hotels and more business and more restaurants and everything else. So uh, it's a pretty good little documentary for about a half hour. But, it, but Miss Callaway would be proud that, that, uh, that we actually saved the town. <laughs> <laughs> and saved the golf ball at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 doing well. Uh, I don't want to make it a Callaway golf ball advertisement, but uh, it's uh, you know we got a lot of tour presence in, in the golf ball, and now that they're starting to do this stuff with artificial intelligence, you know, the driver and the golf ball and, and all the product, it's uh, it's it's kind of cool to to see. It's uh, it's some great product. Around the turn of the century, around two thousand, news and controversy as you created a non-conforming golf club. That, no, that, 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 to me, I'm stuttering. That, to me, that was so overblown. It was just, you know, people got into, I don't know, it, it was crazy. When you start criticizing Arnold Palmer, um, you know, and you're in the golf business, uh, you, need to, you need to take a look at yourself, I think. Uh, you know, Mr. Palmer... Uh, with Ely, you know, endorsed it and said, Hey, look at this. We wanted people to have fun, you know, go out and, and, you know, enjoy the game, which is what, you know, we put on a lot of our advertising and that's really what that golf club was about. But, you know, they, they played it in Europe. They played it on tours in Europe. Nobody shot 58 every week. You know, people hit it a, a little bit further. Um, I don't, I don't think it, destroyed or, or changed a lot of stuff other than, you know, got people got to hit the ball a little bit farther. Um, and the controversy went away and I got to believe the stuff that's out there from every company today is just as hot, if probably hotter than that thing was. Cause that face was pretty thick compared to what we build today. The funny thing is, is that you think about that controversy and it wasn't about making an illegal club for tour. It was just for recreational play. Yeah. And you think about, say uh laser rangefinders that have a slope feature is just as illegal but yeah. that's like kind of the industry standard in that regard so yeah, it, no. it just goes to show that it really was so much about nothing it really was and and everybody everybody went crazy I, mr callaway used to have me call him at home at night every every couple of days and wanted to know what was going on what what, what kind of uh response I was getting at retail, what kind of response I was getting at, you know, like Bel Air Country Club, which is, you know, a big established club and a conservative club. Um, he wanted to know what, what the people were saying out there. So it was just, you know, word of mouth. What did this, you know, what did they say? What did the membership think? Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, he was always in touch with that stuff. He wanted to know what was going on, but that, and it just went away. It, it you know, it, I don't know, I forgot how long it was. We were too busy to worry about it, to be honest with you. Well, you talk about uh, starting with the company as employee number 18. Yeah. Uh, by the time you get to that point in, in, in 2000, 
how big had the operation really gotten there in Carlsbad? It got it, it got big. We uh, it uh, I think we had twenty, I want to say twenty four, twenty five hundred employees. Uh, you know, we had buildings all over that area, Carlsbad. You know, there was a campus over here, a campus over. It was like a college. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the golf ball plant. Uh, it it became big business, and, and you know, and after we went public, you know, a little bit before that, um, it turned the whole the whole thing around, it became a business and it was, uh, it wasn't a mom and pop thing anymore. Uh, you know, once Mr. Calloway was gone in 2002, you know, he used to have the ability to be able to walk in to Ely's office and sit down and talk to him, or he'd call you into his office when you were walking by. Mm -hmm. That all went away. It got to be levels of people that you had, you know, you had to talk to this manager to see this manager to see this guy. And, and uh, you know, it got, a little bit removed from uh, from the day to day employees. Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's gone back uh, a little closer to what it was before now. Um, although I'm not there enough to, to know, but uh, with Chip Brewer and you know he was a golf guy. We had some nine golf people in there for a while. That was a little frightening. <laughs> sure. uh, and uh, I, I, they've got back. And, and you see what's happened to the company. It's it's back up on top again because. Because those people on the top realized, hey, we got to, you know, take a look at what's going on out there uh, the way the way Ely Calloway did. Now, my first PGA show was in 2002, and one club stood out to me above everything else I saw that week, and it was the C4 driver. Yeah. It's one of my favorite clubs of all time, and it was different because it was entirely composite. I got this just for you. <laughs> There's a shell. <laughs> That's a, that's a composite shell from from C4 without the face on it. Um, it you know, again, Mr. Callaway saying, "Hey, we want to do something not just different. We want to do something better." And they started messing around with these composite uh, with these composites that were strong and, and you know, strongest titanium and lighter than titanium. We could play with more weight. We could put it in better places without increasing the overall weight of the golf club. Uh, the problem we had with this was the sound. People wanted to hear that crack, you know, yeah. the louder you, at that point in the golf business, the louder you made it, the better. I remember being at the PGA show out on the range out there and there were some companies that had some golf clubs you had to put earplugs in because they were so loud. Like everything else, everybody gets carried away. Uh, but we knew it worked and we knew the concept worked and we knew allowing that much weight around the perimeter was really the way to build a driver to hit it straighter. Uh, and people, that was a club people either loved or hated. And uh, the guys that liked it, like you, uh, hit it great, weren't concerned about the, the sound. And uh, eventually they kind of moved into, we put a face on it, you know, put a, a metal face on it, like, uh, just like that. There it mm -hmm. is. And uh, so we took both, the best of both worlds. We had a titanium face and the uh the carbon around the outside and and that carbon thing has just evolved and evolved and evolved where a lot of other companies are doing it um and you know we came out with epic flash epic and epic flash and, and all these other guys which are uh carbon that we we developed uh, which is even stronger and lighter and and it's just gets better and better and better it's hard to believe the first time we spoke the big topic was the all-new fusion irons 
In fact, you sent me a set. I played them for a number of years. I bring them up because that construction, not really unlike what we see from a number of brands these days with hollow head construction. And yet this was way back 15 years ago. Yeah. And, and that's the thing I always say to people. And, and of course, nobody believes you, but uh, you know, if they're like, wow, we got this hollow construction and we've got, you know, tungsten on the bottom. And uh, we had a tungsten titanium iron a long, long time ago. And it was uh, hollow and it had tungsten in its sole plate. It was actually a big bar of tungsten. And it was so expensive to make because that tungsten bar had to get lasered and it had to be an exact fit. So somebody had to do that. It couldn't even do it with, with machinery um, and it had to be screwed in. So it made the golf club. I mean, there's golf clubs out there today that are, you know, set irons, you know, 2,500 bucks, but this was a long time ago. And they were, you know, it was, it was 1500, $1,600 for a set of irons. Uh, but we knew the concept worked and we knew it was there and we've uh, put it in a lot of different golf clubs ever since. Uh, a lot of times it's hidden now. We don't even talk about it, but it's in there. There's tungsten here and tungsten there. And uh, But you're right. A lot of people, if, if, you know, today come out with this, you know, this is the greatest thing since cream cheese. We've had it for, you know, 15, 20 years. Yeah, it's amazing that some technology just kind of gets overlooked when it was really introduced because it has become the standard of building essentially a frame with a hot face on top. Yeah, and that's what they are. They're frames, you're right. And most of these irons that are uh, uh, not players clubs, but you know, for weekend players and, mm -hmm. and intermediate players and that kind of thing are, are all based off what we did with, with a frame, with a frame and different materials other than just, you know, carbon or, or stainless. Well, your roles changed at Callaway in the years since, but you still do work for them, but you have no trouble keeping busy. As you said, you're still coaching golf and you're still playing basketball. Yeah. You know, the kids, the, this, this golf thing kind of got tossed in my lap and it, it's, it's one of the best things I've ever done. These, these kids are, uh, the kids are great. I've got, I've got three, uh, not, not just the way they play. They're all good players. You know, I've got a girl going to uh, uh, Northwestern University. She's a you know, Division One player. She, she's on her way this week. Uh, another girl at the University of Pennsylvania, a girl at Penn State. Another one's going to play for Texas, which I think is the number one women's college and uh, golf school in the country right now. In uh, the boys' teams, uh, we got a kid going to UCLA and but it's fun and it's, it's, uh, you know, they kind of look at me like they're, I'm their grandfather because I am, <laughs> but, uh, uh, it, it's, it's great to watch these kids work at it. It's for me, it's like giving something back to the game. I've been in the golf business or been around golf since I was a little kid and never really had another job. Uh, so for me to watch these kids and help them move along and be able to bring them to Callaway, and, you know, take them to the, yeah, I got a, a, a quick story. I took one of the girls down to get fit to some clubs and uh, we went in the back. They were going to adjust some lies or something. And we went in back and there's three bags back there and they all say Phil Mickelson at them. And there's left-handed clubs. They're just jammed in there. There's clubs all over the place. And some of them are kind of weird, <clears throat> you know, Frank and Wood where they bent it for them and all that stuff. Excuse me. And one of these kids, they're young kids. The girl said, are those really Phil Mickelson's clubs? And I said, well, yeah, they were, you know, tried them. She said, can I touch them? 
sure. Go, go right ahead. <laughs> so you forget how, how much it means to a lot of people that, you know, this is a big deal for them. You know, you get, you kind of, you're, you're in the golf business a long time. So am I, you kind of get where it's not a big deal. Uh, but for, for a lot of people it is. So it's fun to be able to, to involve those kids and, and see what really happens in, in the golf business. It's fun. And the basketball thing was I was playing the California senior match play. I qualified and I was playing a guy at the uh, go to the casa. And when we finished playing the match, he had a buddy of his walking around. We started talking and the guy told me he played basketball at army and he was about my age, right around 70. And he said, I said, oh, I played at Western Connecticut. He said, do you still play? And I said, yeah. He said, I'm getting tired of playing with the kids though. I said, everybody thinks they're uh, Michael Jordan. I said, so you know, I just shoot around. He said, we've got the largest uh, uh, senior basketball program in the country. It's in San Juan Capistrano. Why don't you come down? And I went down and it's this wonderful organization and they break it up into uh, five-year increments, 60, 65, 65, all the way to over 80. Uh, and they have teams for each one of those groups and we travel. We won the uh, the 65 and over we won in, uh, in Las Vegas and we got to qualify for the senior Olympics and went and played in that. And, uh, the 80 and over 80 and over team. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but it's true. Uh, won the national championship three years in a row and represented the United States, uh, overseas. So it's, uh, it's kind of fun. It hurts when you're done, <laughs> but it's still fun. And it doesn't do much for my golf game either. <laughs> Yeah, it gives you gives you a little variety, and you still yeah, need variety. Yeah. We like to wrap up our talks here on the range by taking a look back. It could even be a look way back uh, to maybe a favorite club or a favorite launch that you had. So if you have a favorite club that really jumps out from your time playing or maybe something that when it came out, it's like, wow, this was really special when we were able to bring this to the public. Well, I, I mean, that's pretty much a slam dunk for me. I mean, you know, when we we hit the big birth of prototypes. Uh, we took them down to, I mean, we had no facility, right? So we went down to the polo field across the street from the Del Mar, uh, uh, where, where they run the horse racetrack. Mm -hmm. And we'd go there at seven o'clock in the morning because there'd be nobody around. And we had orange cones from the street department and walkie talkies and yellow legal pads. And we'd hit shots and compare it to something and people would walk it off and radio it back. That's 265 yards and it's eight feet left. And then we'd average it all out. So that's how I tell those guys down there now with all the computers, they just laugh. It's like, you know, were there dinosaurs around when you guys were doing this? I mean, it's that long ago, but we realized right away how much better this golf club, Big Bertha was than anything that was out there. There was no comparison how straight it went, how, how easy it was to get up in the air. So uh, other than just have to convince people that this big, ugly, gray thing that they were going to pay $350 for uh, was, uh, was going to change the golf business, uh, it did. It, it changed the golf business. It, it, it made it easier for people to play. Uh, it made it more fun to play. It made it more enjoyable. And that's what Ely Callaway was. That's what Callaway Golf was built for. And he did it. 
Well, Bruce, it's great catching up with you. I literally came across your name on Twitter and immediately thought that we had to have a conversation here on the range. Oh, I'm glad and you did. That's cool. I'm glad I reached out and even happier that you replied. So I hope the folks uh, really can appreciate looking back at some great stories through what you've had, which is a remarkable career. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, like I tell everybody, I could bore you to death with stories. So <laughs> good thing you're only doing this for a little while. <laughs> it's good to see you, and I'm glad I ran into you. Thank you. That was Bruce Lohman. As you can tell, he saw it all in the developing years of Callaway, and he was with them all the way through the growth and becoming a major, major brand in the game. That was fun. I really enjoyed that talk, and I hope you did as well. Before we go, last weekend, the LPGA hosted one of its majors in the ANA Inspiration at the Mission Hills Country Club in Palm Desert, California. Now, one of the unique features of the championship course is a reachable par 5 18th hole with an island green. In most years, the backside of the island is not in play, as there is a tented grandstand constructed. As we have seen across all of professional golf, it's interesting to see how the players handle playing courses the way we do, without the fans and without what can be helpful tournament setups. A reachable par 5 with an island green, meaning there's trouble left, right, front, and back? That's drama. Sadly, the organizers determined they'd rather have a wall, truly a backstop, with minimal advertising, constructed just off the back edge of the green and preventing any balls from reaching the hazard long. Why? Believe me, I'm not the only one asking. Here is Golf Channel's Judy Rankin as Lexi Thompson approached the 18th in the third round. You know, that was a planned shot to just try to bounce it off of that wall. And um, I, interesting, I'll let it go. Mm. <laughs> you want to say something? This soft approach is not needed for the best women golfers on the planet, and it really only makes them look bad. The tournament officials and the tour, for that matter, should be better than this. It did not help anyone. If you want to know more about golf equipment, subscribe to us on YouTube at The Golf Spotlight. For the latest on the range, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. That's right, at The Golf Spotlight. We welcome your comments there any time as well. You've listened this far, so subscribe to The Range on iTunes or follow us on Spotify or iHeart, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. Now that'll do it for this episode of The Range, so let's tee it up and hammer that drive, no matter who made the club. And we'll talk to you next time, right here on The Range. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.